This is The Guardian. The energy system has to be carbon neutral. Honestly, that doesn't happen at the flip of a switch. It's about changing the whole system. Being carbon neutral in our operations by 2030 is just one part of that. I'm Nakul Prasad and I work at Siemens Energy. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. The Grey Report is finally out. And what do we get from Boris Johnson? Lots of excuses and a few limp apologies. I'm humbled and I have learned a, a lesson how to speak. Gray's report criticised multiple examples of a lack of respect and poor treatment of security and cleaning staff. And it revealed a lot of we-got-away-with-it boasts from Downing Street's senior staff. The Prime Minister still faces questions about lying to Parliament. You told us all categorically that no rules were broken. But this is your home. You made the rules as Prime Minister. So it does beg the question, are you a liar? And in the midst of all this deceit and disgrace, some Tories are said to be resigned to two things. One, Johnson staying in his job, and two, their party losing the next election. How long can this country go on like this? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian columnist Raphael Baer and The Observer columnist and chief leader writer Sonia Soda. Hello to you both. Hi, John. Hi, John. Here's a straightforward question, and I don't want you to go into the detail of of, of what um, has happened, but just tell me how you feel after a, a, a full day of Sue Gray report and all the fallout from it. I think I feel angry again. Comes and goes in waves, doesn't it? You can't you can't maintain the level of anger with this government on a sort of constant heat setting because it's just too exhausting. So I'd sort of, you know, I'd kind of chilled out about Partygate and then, you know, today happens and I just feel angry all over again. Yeah, for me it's it's a kind of exhaustion because it's kind of I don't want to care, but you have to care. And the fact that they don't care, it's like a tax on you for caring. It's like or it's like picking up other people's dog shit or something or do you know what I mean it's that says if you're the Lovely. if you have a vague sense of responsibility and you're surrounded by people who don't it's it's, it's there's something uniquely kind of wearyingly taxing about mm. it and that that's kind of how I feel I feel much the same as Sonia in the sense that I felt and I was quite surprised at how angry I felt watching Boris Johnson um give his statement in parliament and then getting a sense of what his sort of line on all this was through the day strangely as well I was surprised at myself I felt a bit sick. I felt sort of repulsed, nauseated by it. I guess because I could sense that there was something horribly dangerous and morally grim about what I was watching. I suppose I'm still sort of, I mean, as sort of ridiculous as this may sound to a lot of people, I'm still a bit invested in our supposedly great institutions and to watch them just sort of being kicked around willy-nilly like this purely for the reasons of someone staying in post. It's just awful. There's something dreadful about it. Yeah, so the one thing I, where I really identify with that is when you actually watched a press conference and I was listening to what he was saying and I suddenly realised, no, literally everything he says is a lie. It doesn't actually matter. Like, you're used to thinking politicians might bend or twist the truth, but actually, it, it actually doesn't matter what he's saying because it could all be totally untrue. You can just tune out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, inevitably, your emotional reaction to that, it's sort of beyond rational thinking, isn't it? There's something very visceral about that. Anyway, as we all know, Partygate has reached what a film critic would call its denouement. 
Boris Johnson has responded to Sue Gray's long-delayed report on the parties that broke COVID rules in Downing Street and elsewhere. But before we hear what he's been saying, let's look back at how exactly we got here. I've just seen reports on Twitter that there was a Downing Street Christmas party on Friday night. Do you recognise those reports? (laughs) I went home. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on, hold on. Um, uh, uh... That's Allegra Stratton, the Prime Minister's former press secretary, in a leaked video made public in November 2021. That was one of the first times we heard about rule-breaking parties in Number 10 during lockdown. So and, is it, was it, and, was it a party and, where the guidelines were followed, or was it not a party? It, it, I can tell you that the guidelines were followed at all times. The scandal that would be known as Partygate had started. As a result, on December the 8th, 2021, Boris Johnson announced that there'd be an investigation. I have asked the Cabinet Secretary to establish all the facts and to report back as soon as possible. And then enter Sue Gray. Once called the most powerful person you've never heard of, she was put in charge of putting together a report about what had happened. Hers was a name we hear again. Sue Gray will look at all the various different bits of snippets. And again. It's uh, a matter for Sue Gray. And again. Now Sue Gray will tell us. She had her work cut out thanks to more and more revelations about parties in the media. There was the Prime Minister and his wife drinking wine at a gathering in the Downing Street garden. A cake on Boris Johnson's birthday. And a raucous drunken party that happened on the eve of Prince Philip's funeral. But Boris Johnson stuck to his line. You are just taking the mickey out of the British people by suggesting that. You know how silly that sounds, don't you? I think what people need to do is wait and see what the the report says. But I I repeat... And just when we were hoping the Sue Gray report would finally land in January, Metropolitan Police decided to investigate some of the alleged events, which put the brakes on her report. Very convenient for Boris Johnson. We got an update soon after from Sue Gray saying there were failures of leadership and judgment. At this point, it looked like Boris Johnson was getting away with it, thanks to the way he styled himself as an international statesman after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But then Partygate reared its head again in April as Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak were fined. This story broken in the past few minutes. The Prime Minister and the Chancellor both being issued with fines uh, relating to... This was the first time a sitting Prime Minister was found to have broken the law. Tory MPs called on him to resign. I'm very sorry to have to say this, but I no longer think he is worthy of the great office that he holds. But ultimately, most rallied round him. This month, the Met confirmed that its inquiries were complete. 126 fixed penalty notices have been given to 83 people. And then, the Sue Gray report was finally published. And here we are. It's quite something to hear from Allegra Stratton, isn't it? The only person who's resigned out of all of this. And she didn't even go to any of the parties, we don't think. To use a Beatles analogy, she's like the peak best of Partygate, isn't she? Like an early casualty. Wasn't around when it all when it all broke big. Uh, as <laughs> ba- seriously flatters Boris Johnson by making him either the Lennon or the McCartney of, of Partygate. Yeah, he's definitely neither of the He's yeah. neither. And we just make that clear. He is neither. Speaking of Boris Johnson, let's hear some of what he said to the House of Commons on Wednesday. I briefly attended such gatherings to thank them for their service which I believe is one of the essential duties of leadership and particularly important 
and particularly important when people need to feel that their contributions have been appreciated and to keep morale as high as possible. I'm trying to explain the reasons I was there, Mr Speaker. And it's clear from what uh, Sue Gray has had to say that some of these gatherings then went on far longer than was necessary. It was a funny sort of apology, really, wasn't it? This had been trailed, hadn't it, as this hugely sort of contrite occasion when he would endlessly say sorry uh, and be as contrite as anyone could conceivably be. And it wasn't like that at all, I thought, watching it. I mean, that was another reason I felt sort of repulsed by it, that he he managed to sound apologetic for all of about 10 seconds. Very quickly, he was on the attack against Keir Starmer, calling him Sabir Cormer. And also, on the occasions when he was trying to sound apologetic, it was somehow all about him. There was this noticeable tone of self-pity. And I felt I was, just, I was watching the same person I ever watch when Boris Johnson pops up on the television, which is someone who's sort of narcissistic and self-centred to a ludicrous extent. And so none of this sense of apology we were meant to take from it, I guess, none of it really was brought home to me. I felt I was watching something that, as much as anything, was quite strange. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think you put your finger on it, which is that Boris Johnson, I think, has probably never been contrite about anything in his life. And it just doesn't ring true, does it? When he said that he was appalled, I mean, I can't imagine that anyone would have really watched that. And I mean, some people might not care about this in the same way that I suppose people like you and me and Raf do. But you can't imagine that anyone would have watched that and believed him when he said he was appalled and believed him when he said he didn't know. And I think some of the excuses that we've heard from him afterwards as well, for example, in the press conference, have just been insulting. So when he said, he sort of tried to make it sound like, well, you might not agree, but it's the right thing to do to give your colleagues a send off. No, not during a national emergency in a global pandemic. So you know, he was sort of making the case we just had to have this boozy party to send off, you know, my head of press or whatever. But, you know, what that completely fails to recognise is people could not see their dying parents and be with their dying parents. And I just frankly think, I mean, it, it, it just smacks of an insult. So I think there'll be some people who don't don't particularly care and there'll be lots of people who feel this very very deeply and I I just can't see anyone watching that and thinking oh yeah he's really apologetic he's learned the lessons in his his language. Raph you wonder you wonder about his PR operation don't you when you hear him sort of say he has a he had a moral duty to serially attend leaving dues at the same time he was denying other people's moral duty to sit with their dying close relatives i mean it took a little while for that to sink in once he said it there was a sort of three or four minute lag and then social media exploded people sort of processed the awfulness of it yeah it's interesting there are different layers to to what he was attempting to do uh, and i certainly i was very struck by how how self-pitying it seemed. But there are, there are a couple of layers to the deception. One is, you know, bear in mind that what he, he very precisely apologised for was the thing that he got fined for, was the, the cab- attending the cabinet meeting, because that's the point where he broke the law. I think when you say there's a sort of PR issue here, some of it feels filtered through a very legalistic understanding that's anticipating the question of did you or didn't you lie to the House of Commons? Because the next chapter of this is that that very specific question where some more Tories might say, okay, actually, under the Cabinet Code, that's a sacking offence. We will come on to this. Um, Now, we're going to talk now about what's actually in the Sue Great Report. Now, let's not forget 
that the night before the report was published, BBC Two aired a special edition of Panorama in which three whistleblowers, government staff members, really um, painted, I thought, a remarkable sort of lurid picture of offices smattered with empty bottles. And vomit. Weekly so... <laughs> vomit, yeah. Weekly so-called wine time Fridays. And at, Boris, four o'clock. At, at four o'clock. At four o'clock on a Friday. Four o'clock. Um, and... Boris Johnson sort of periodically appearing and encouraging everyone to let off steam, you know, as if he was sort of the ringmaster of the chaos somehow. So that sort of set the context. Uh, tell me things that really stuck out as you read the report and heard about. I've got my own list, but give us yours. Yeah, for me, it was the awful bit about security and cleaning staff and the fact yeah. that they've been treated with a lack of respect. Now, on one level, it just doesn't surprise me at all because we know that this is how people like Boris Johnson operate. We know about his kind of university background, the Bullingdon Club, where literally, you know, they made a sport out of going to restaurants and trashing restaurants and then paying for the damage that they caused. So it's not a surprise, but I, I just think to see it there in black and white that the culture in number 10 is such that senior officials, you know, may well be senior politicians as well. Boris Johnson may be among the number, we don't know. But that people were treated almost with scorn, cleaning and security staff, when they were raising concerns about what was going on. I mean, I just, you know, frankly, I just think that's disgusting. And it's so revealing about the people they are. There's another aspect of of exactly that point, which is like something from a play or a film, I thought which is the image of cleaning staff coming in in the morning and wiping red wine off the walls. The very same cleaning staff who I would imagine were well aware this was towards Christmas time that they couldn't see their friends and relatives and all the rest of it. And there they were cleaning up highly paid government officials and I dare say politicians mess after them. I thought thought of all the images conjured up by this, this was probably the most vivid, you know. I mean, in terms of the the colour, you know, the lurid details of, of what was going on, yeah, I, I can't disagree with any of that. that. That was all, it just sort of made your skin crawl slightly. But reading through it, actually the thing that, that properly, sort of journalistically, really raised my eyebrows and I thought, hang on a second, was the point in the report where it, the prose became very weird and it said, and there was this event in the Downing Street flat and there was a Prime Minister and a group of aides uh, and 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 Carrie Simons now Johnson uh, and I was looking into it says Sue Gray but then the police said they were looking into it so I stopped looking into it and then the police said they weren't investigating it so I didn't have to investigate it and I just thought hang on a bloody second what has gone on there because that is you're, you're hanging out in your flat there's music there's booze there's food you know, any understanding by any other standard in this report that's a breach of the rules and you're saying you didn't look into it because it's what it's the pm's gaff what has gone on there and, and would you venture venture tentatively an answer to that question what has gone on there do you suspect intuitively and i i i, I really resist you know anything that smacks of slight conspiracy theories or stitch up or whitewash but intuitively you feel that somewhere along the line someone thought you can sniff around this as much as you want sue gray you can demand responsibility and you can be as tough as you like on some things but that's my house back off and whether in the case of the police and sue gray at some stage a veil was drawn over that particular occasion and it stinks to me the other thing is that uh, sporadically through the report you read these voices talking about drinks that aren't drinks and having these exchanges of messages where they talk about, oh, it looks like we got away with it. Are mm. you sure about this? You know, and Lee Kane, his former director of communications, I think, says, um, oh, there are substantial comms risks. So, so the, po- <laughs> the point being, they knew what they were doing was wrong. Absolutely. And 
you know, these aren't junior officials. A prime minister's special advisor, you know, was saying, oh, well, you know, make sure that you leave by the back entrance and this is after the press conference, so we need to be careful because it won't look good. It's just extraordinary because a lot of the defence from the PM up till now has been, this was just all work stuff. We we know, we, you know, we didn't know we were doing anything wrong. And I'm afraid this just blasts that out of the water as far as I'm concerned. Also, the, his defence that he didn't know it was happening is just exactly. not plausible. You know, when he, if you keep walking into rooms and there's people drinking wine and, and you still the, the stand up in the House of Commons and say, but apart from the time that I was there, I was unaware that any of this was happening. It, 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 not only does it beg a belief, but it, it's a sort of it's you think it was almost spitefully designed to rub your nose in the fact that he can say this stuff and he doesn't believe it and we don't believe it. And let's remind ourselves as well about the kind of restrictions that the rest of us were under uh, at some of these points. So, for example, that there was a gathering, this is mentioned on page 29, on the 18th of, of November 2020. That was when London was in Tier 2, in which gatherings of two or more people indoors continued to be prohibited unless an exception applied, such as where the gathering was reasonably necessary for work purposes. And, and the report says of that event, the event was crowded and noisy, such that some people working elsewhere in the Number 10 building that evening heard significant levels of noise coming from what they characterise as a party in the press office. And then the one that kills me is uh, the party in the Cabinet Office on the departure of a Number 10 official, which the report refers to as an event of two halves. Now, that's the one that a Number 10 official, I think, after the fact, or no, before it actually, referred to as drinks which aren't drinks. But that's the one where Helen McNamara, the Deputy Cabinet Secretary, who I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is or was the head of ethics. Yeah, for propriety and ethics. Okay, propriety and ethics. Well, how's this for propriety and ethics? She attended, and I quote, for part of the evening and provided a karaoke machine, which was set up in an adjoining office. The report goes on. The event lasted for a number of hours. I bet it did. There was excessive alcohol consumption. This is already legendary by some individuals. One individual was sick. There was a minor altercation between two other individuals and the last person left at 3.13 in the morning. This This is not just 20 minutes of leaving drinks and a speech, is it? And that November lockdown, I mean, that was really miserable. It felt really grim because we'd sort of gone back into this second very hard lockdown. And, you know, you just think they were doing karaoke at two in the morning. That's the thing. It's the taking the piss out of everyone else. And today, particularly egregious today, is the attempt to defend it on the basis that it was really hard. Uh, whereas, you know, obviously, you know, being a nurse, it, it, you know, in an ICU, that was that was a doddle. You know, yeah, yeah, that was easy peasy. I just make clear that I used to work for music for music magazines. Where I've said this before, where it was not unknown occasionally that booze would appear in the office, and I have never ever, even on a Friday. Started drinking at four o'clock in the afternoon while it, while in the workplace. I mean, let alone doing so every week. Um, let's talk about what wasn't in the report. Now, Raf has already talked about the so-called ABBA party, uh, which was a sort of, as we understand it, was a kind of celebration of the fact that Dominic Cummings was on his way out at Carrie Johnson's behest. But there's a, there's another point in all this about about what wasn't in the report mm. to do with the question of um, Boris Johnson misleading Parliament, the question of whether he has lied. Now, the biggest single question hanging over that is about a do, a gathering, held to mark the departure of Lee Kane, the Downing Street Director of Communications, on the 13th of November 2020, 
We are told that the Prime Minister attended that event on his way to uh, his Downing Street flat, having left his office at 17 minutes past seven. He went to the press office area, joined the gathering and made a leaving speech for Lee Kane. Wine had been provided and those attending, including the Prime Minister, were drinking alcohol. Now, Boris Johnson, this is very important, I think, was later asked by the Labour MP Catherine West whether there had been a party that night. And in response, he said, no, but I am sure that whatever happened, the guidance was followed and the rules were followed at all times. It seems to me that that's a fairly open and shut case of misleading Parliament. The question actually was, will the Prime Minister tell us or tell the House whether there was a party? So when he says no, technically, he could be saying, no, I'm not going to tell you. I'm unable to tell you. That would be his sort of legalistic defense. But I mean, it's absurd, really. It but is. There, there is that little window. But but. But more broadly, I think there is a danger here that we get into exactly that game of saying, well, was it a party or a gathering or a legal gathering? You know, what was the specifics of what he actually said? What were the sort of hermeneutics of whether or not it was exactly a lie? Whereas very clearly throughout this whole process, he has been systemically misleading everyone mm-hmm. inside and outside the chamber with everything that he's been saying. And if we get into the kind of, you know, it's, it's almost a trap to start thinking, aha, we've caught you in the, in a very specific lie here. When the whole thing, every time he was opening his mouth to describe this and trying to exonerate himself, he was doing it on the false premise that he wasn't aware that this was happening and that if it was, he was confident it was all going on within the rules. So that was, the technical legal term here is bollocks. And he was even shocked to find out that there were parties happening. I mean, you know, back when Allegra Stratton resigned, he was like, you know, I'm, I'm shocked by this, was basically what he told the House of Commons. Which he's still doing. I I mean, the point was that throughout today, it's this idea that, well, you know, I'm just a complete bystander here. All of this happened in my home come workplace, the very heart of government. And even now, he's trying to make out that he is surprised and utterly scandalised by what was happening at events at which he himself was present. The weird thing is, you've got all these cabinet sort of ministers tweeting out um, in the afternoon lessons have been learned now we must move on and it's like we must move on what lessons have been learned you're basically washing your hands of it and saying it wasn't really anything to do with you you're sorry but not sorry that's not learning lessons to me it's all right you mentioned Tory MPs a moment ago one or two have spoken up very strongly let's hear um Tobias Elwood the Conservative MP for Bournemouth East I made my point and my position very clear to the Prime Minister he does not have my support but a question I humbly put to my colleagues is are you willing day in and day out to defend this behavior publicly can we continue to govern without distraction given the erosion of the trust with the british people and can we win the general election on this current trajectory i thought he sounded a, a suitably sort of strong moral note to start with i think he sort of compromised his point slightly by talking about winning elections mark harper uh, the former uh, Conservative whip, uh, one of the one of the key Brexiteers, when he was on Panorama um, in that programme I mentioned a moment ago, he was sounding sort of similar notes. We all know, I mean, there's sort of reliable names now. Tom Tugendhat, William Ragg, the increasingly renowned MP for Hazel Grove near Stockport. But you wonder, I suppose, about people we've not heard about. Um, I don't know whether any of you have got any sense of what went on at the meeting of Conservative MPs that Boris Johnson addressed. That's obviously a, um, a fairly important occasion. I saw one report suggesting that the Prime Minister did what he always does at these things, which is sort of starts off a bit contrite and then tries to solicit some complicity with a bit of joke and about, you know, some essentially office bants and trying to make light of it, you know, in terms of 
yeah, this sort of thing happens, doesn't it? And, and that, that didn't go down terribly well. There was an unnamed Tory MP who I saw quoted on social media an hour or two ago who said essentially the position was that they're now resigned to losing the next election and they're also resigned to Boris Johnson being the leader at that point and that's sort of where the crucial bulk of Conservative MPs are. Which seems still seems sort of mind-boggling. I know that's just a plain political fact, but I still find that sort of remarkable. I can't help it. Yeah, it is crazy that there's just no consequences. But I think the thing that's holding Conservative MPs back, and we've talked about this before, and the reason why they're not acting is, who's the alternative? So Boris Johnson is increasingly becoming an electoral liability, but they've, they've got to have somebody to coalesce behind, you know, at least some of them, if they're going to act. And it's, quite frankly, it's, you know, Boris Johnson's becoming an electoral liability, but it's quite hard to see how any of some of the talked up successes that have a chance with the membership could do better maybe someone like Jeremy Hunt could do better but it's quite hard to see him winning in the membership I think we are going to pause here for a moment and uh, next we will talk about Boris Johnson it looks like wriggling his way out of this further repercussions and the odd obstacle which he is likely to face in the near future which may yet bring him up short lot of important skills to get our job done but honestly everything we need won't be on your cv because as the whole energy industry is transforming a change mindset is as important as your skills i'm melanie forbrick and i work at siemens energy learn more at siemensenergy.com Right, welcome back. We are now going to talk about Partygate in the context of the immediate political future of Boris Johnson, the Conservative Party, and the rest of us, I dare say. There is one thing which is now going to swing into action, which is very, very interesting, I suppose, which is the inquiry by the Standards and Privileges Committee um, into whether or not Boris Johnson lied to Parliament. You know, it's not like all investigations are now shut. And as the as the today's phrase has it, everybody moves on. Quite the reverse. So this now looms into view. Does that, does that have any real clout? Is it likely to conclude that, that he lied to Parliament? I think it quite possibly could, actually. I mean, it's quite hard to see how it would arrive at a different conclusion. I think all it provides is another moment um, where if Conservative MPs are starting to feel like this is really, really existential for lots of them, they may act. But I don't think the content of the report will substantively change anything because... I mean, my God, the Prime Minister's been fined for breaking the law. This awful report's come out today and he's still there. So I can't see the contents of the report making a difference or not. I think it's more about the mood in the parliamentary party and the timing and how it coincides with how Tory MPs are feeling. Well, if, you know, if the swing in Tiverton is massive... No, you're, 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 you're jumping election. ahead. You're jumping ahead oh, OK, sorry. All I was going to say was that the committee has the power to call for evidence, including documents or photographs taken at various Downing Street events, and it could also seek to take evidence from witnesses, including the Prime Minister. So you might get a bit more drama, no question. Now, we will then move on to what you jumped the gun on slightly there, Raph, which are are these two looming by-elections, one in Wakefield in Yorkshire, the other in Tiverton and Honnett and in Devon. They both fall on June the 23rd. And I suppose then, you know, 
again, things could get quite tight for the Prime Minister, conceivably, particularly if the Conservative Party loses Tiverton and Honiton, which up to now has been an ultra-safe seat. And given what happened in North Shropshire in the middle of the Owen Patterson row or towards the end of it, that is not inconceivable. Well, it's also particularly interesting because it's the Lib Dems who are the threat, and that suggests that... You know, the, the indication that a lot of essentially liberal minded, middle class, sort of soft Cameron-y Tories who have been voting Tory in particular because they didn't want Ed Miliband to be prime minister. They definitely didn't want Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister. And so if it becomes clear that actually there are a bunch of seats where you know, Labour step back and the Lib Dems start to pick off these Tories, you know, that there are. Cabinet ministers who lose their seats there, you know, they're in places like Winchester, Romsey, Lewis, you know, there are all sorts of seats where Dominic Raab's seat is up for grabs. Boris Johnson's seat is up for grabs. I mean, that's a, the Labour threat. But the, the, if those sorts of people are swinging away from the Tories, then they will start to feel a bit more ruthless about change of leadership. I think Wakefield's a write-off, isn't it, for the Conservatives? Yeah, I mean, you, you would have thought so just because of how how marginal it is. And my sense is it's, it's not, in, to use the horrible phrase, kind of red wall, hardcore, re- repelled by Labour in, from years and years of neglect. It's actually quite a bellwethery seat, uh, and that ought to swing to Labour. And I think the other two thing about both of these seats, actually, is that there are the local circumstances. So you've got the national picture, what's going on with the Conservative. But, I mean... My God, in Wakefield, the MP has been convicted and will be going to prison for sexually assaulting a child. And in Tiverton and in the Devon Devon seat, it's a guy who watched porn in the House of Commons and had to stand down because of that. So, I mean, I think the local sleaze factor in in the one seat and then actually, you know, one of the most abhorrent crimes there is going in um, the Wakefield seat will have an impact with local voters as well. Now, there's a big question swirls around... um these by-elections, notwithstanding those very specific and, and, and really crucial factors that you mentioned, which is this bigger question of what the public make of all this. Because all day we've heard Conservative MPs saying, oh, the public's had enough of this. They don't want to hear any more about this. They just want to move on, you know, and they or they want us to talk about the cost of living crisis and just leave this really to gather dust. Now, um, I have met people recently like this. In fact, my father-in-law staying with us at the moment and he's of that opinion himself. So I've had a, a bit of a dose of that opinion this afternoon it is there when we were in Plymouth recently um in the build-up to the local elections we went to a a diner cafe run by a fella called Al it was quite a loyal conservative voter who talked to us to us about his feelings about party gate and he's one of these people and this is what he said to us yes naughty boy but can you look yourself in the mirror and say you never broke one rule during lockdown yes but the point is, I didn't make the rules. No, I didn't make the rules, and I followed them. If the fellow who makes the rules breaks the rules, where are we? Yeah, he's been he's been punished. He's had his fine. He's paid for it. Broadly speaking, you think it's dealt with, and you're all right with it? Um, I think it was a silly billy, um, and it's been dealt with to a degree. Better the devil, you know. Okay. And you still think he's the right man for the job? I I actually do think he's a very good PM. He's got a lot done this time, and let's face it, he's had a hell of a lot to deal with. He's come in, dealt with Brexit, and he's dealt with the pandemic. Okay, now this, by contrast, uh, was a nurse that we met while we were out uh, watching the Labour Party canvas. She'd voted Conservative in the recent past, and she said this. Are you going to vote next week? Yes. Do you know who you're going to vote for? Not Conservative. And have you voted Conservative in the past? I have. You voted for Boris Johnson? Yeah. And you're not voting Conservative this time? No. Why not? I work for the NHS. 
So I've made a lot of sacrifices, as you know, as, as well as others have um, during the COVID and a few other things. Um, and I just think it's time for something different. Right. Are there, is there any particular events or new yeah, stories? Just, I think that just all of it, really. Just how, just how he is, how he's behaved in recent months. You just, just know. What parties and all that yeah. stuff. I mean, they, they'd say, well, we had a great vaccine rollout and restrictive. I, my granddad of COVID last year, so my mum and I weren't able to go and see her. Um, I have held dying people's hands because their families haven't been able to come in. So it's, it's not fun. It's not funny. Right, there you go. So, the, I mean, that's the question, really, I suppose, of the immediate political future is which angle on all this sort of wins out. And my, my sense, I have to say, is that Partygate, because it's so vivid, it's a very, very vivid sort of visceral story, and it involves, by implication, what people have gone through over the last two and a half years. I don't think it's going away. I, th- I think, although there are people like Al, and there are probably more of them, that m- the more sort of complacent view of this would suggest, I think, having said that, that people like that nurse that we spoke to, I think they're in the majority and therefore I think the Conservatives have got a lot to worry about. So so I think that there are um, people who are very, very angry about this, like that nurse that we heard from. To be honest, like I, I didn't suffer anything as terrible as losing a relative, but I didn't see like my niece for huge chunks of time, months on end, she, when she was a little baby. You never get that time back. So I'm very... I think there's lots of people who feel angry about that. I think... The people who are angry about this are already angry and their minds aren't changed that much by events like today. But that doesn't mean he's off the hook, because actually, if you look at the polling um, and his personal ratings, they have been really affected by the Partygate revelations. The other thing culturally, which I think is often overlooked in this, I may have mentioned this before on the podcast. There's not much I haven't mentioned already on the podcast, really. I haven't done it for 14 episodes so far or thereabouts. But um. There's a really weird tension in the midst of national life in England at the moment, which is that we've been through this this two and a half year experience of the pandemic, which turned everyone's lives upside down. A lot of people have had an absolutely awful experience involving bereavement and serious illness and so on. And because the government is so compromised when it comes to its own conduct through that period, they can't talk about it. They can't lead any sort of national process of healing or, you know, looking back retrospectively. I can't imagine a a service of remembrance at Westminster Abbey. I mean, I'm sure Boris Johnson would be shameless enough to turn up and plonk himself in a pew in the front row. But that would be absurd, right? So there's that for a start. And then secondly... There's the extent to which you're going to read all of politics now. Whatever the government does inevitably will be read as them cynically trying to trying to kick up any any number of distractions to get people's attention away from this, which applies even to the fact that it's brought forward its um its hastily assembled Nick from the Labour Party, it looks like, response to the cost of living crisis, which is coming on Thursday. Um, that's an interesting question there whether what Rishi Sunak announces is going to do anything to get him out of a hole. I don't know what you, what you're, what you think about the, the prospect of that. I mean, I think it's very hard for it to because simply the problem is so big now and it comes on top of, you know, Tory chancellors cutting away at tax credits for a decade. The baseline is really low. The safety net isn't there for families, in low-paid families, in the same way that it was 10 years ago. And so even if he comes out and does what the Resolution Foundation is calling for him to do, which is basically a one grand per family cash giveaway for, you know, the poorest 15 million families, so families 
in receipt of benefits, tax credits and, 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 and um, you know, uh, state pension. Even if he does that, a thousand pounds just doesn't cover the extra costs that families have got to bear. So, um, it's, yeah, it's hard to see how it, anything he would do would be enough, to be honest. Yeah, they call that helicopter money. And luckily, you know, Rishi's got a helicopter. So he could quite, quite literally do helicopter money. No, I mean, Sonia's absolutely right. It's basically inflation at 10%. That's, you know, and we've all, we, you know, well, most of us normally, you know, I'm sure you guys have both had it as well. You know, you look in your bank account and you think, where did it all go? Because everything's got that much more expensive and your wages aren't keeping up. Um, and that, that as is, yeah, that is not something that you can fix. Um, you, you, you can't take that anxiety and the stress that, that comes with that away in, in a single budget. And you need to be able to, as you were saying, John, you need to be able to tell a story about you know what the destination is, how you're fixing it. And then I think there's a problem when the prime minister is someone who, who whose credibility to deliver any kind of message has been compromised uh, and, and the chancellor increasingly as well. So I think that they, they do have serious problems on that front. So to return to Partygate before we finish, um, I read something very interesting recently in a, a rival newspaper that a, a pollster uh, came up with. And he was talking about how misplaced it is to think about the, somehow the cost of living knocking Partygate off the political agenda. Because he said, and I've experienced this myself talking to people, that the two things are intertwined in voters' minds. I mean, that's how politics works, mm. right? Is that people see politics as a sort of, um, as an amalgamation of lots and lots mm. of things that have common themes. Yeah. And that's that's how the image of a government works. That's how we all think about politics, right? And Partygate and the cost of living fit together very, very snugly because you have a sense of Tory politicians who are steeped in excess, who think they can live by different rules from the rest of us. And the idea that they would therefore credibly come to people's rescue or have any understanding of what the daily experience of the cost of living crisis is like for most people, it's just forget it. People, people have come to the conclusion that what Partygate tells you is that the government is off in a different universe. They're away with the fairies and therefore they're not going to ride to the rescue. And there's another absurd element to this, which is when Conservative MPs say we need to get off Partygate so we can get back onto the things that, that people care about. As if you know, the, the connection is that because Boris Johnson has this sort of reprobate, derelict, moral personality. That's what gave everyone in number 10 the permission to behave as they did. And that's why you have a chaotic administration and bad government that can't actually fix anything. So, you know, essentially this idea that you can let's stop talking about what an appalling human being the prime minister is so we can get back to talking about what a rubbish prime minister he is you know he's still bad he's bad at both yeah things, and also you know? and they so haven't that, don't got any ideas on cost of living there's no point them sending ministers to talk you know about how bad the cost of living is when an interviewer says well what are you going to do about it and they're all running in different directions it's nuts so last week uh, on the podcast, we ended on a rather bleak note and I ended up quoting Pink Floyd lyrics and God knows what. And I think I was really depressing the listenership. If I were to safely assume most of our listeners are, are a broadly sort of non-Tory disposition. In a word, things have changed, haven't they? We, this, there, we may be in the midst of a bit of a political shift here, which means that the Conservatives aren't having it their own way anymore. In a word, Raf. Uh, I've, as I've said on this podcast before, it's more than my word, but I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> until he, until he, until he's not, until he's out, until he's not the prime minister, then I'm not. I, I rule nothing out. Sonia, any optimism to finish? I think all this creates a window of opportunity for Labour. 
but it is not in the bag. So I share some of Raf's um, pessimism, which is there's just no accounting for sometimes when people swing back to the Tories when it gets to general election time. Okay, well, on that note, we will reopen the window of opportunity next week and explore politics a bit more. Thank you for joining us as ever, Sonia Soda and Raphael Baer. Goodbye to you both. Thanks for having us, John. Thank you. Gabby Hensley for standing in for me next week because I'm about to jump out of the aforementioned window of opportunity. Um, let's see if Boris Johnson is still Prime Minister by the time I come back. I think he probably will be. This episode was produced by Natalie Katena. The music was by Axel Kakutier, and the executive producers are Baz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. Thanks for listening. a lot of important skills to get our job done. But honestly, everything we need won't be on your CV. Because as the whole energy industry is transforming, a change mindset is as important as your skills. I'm Melanie Forbrick, and I work at Siemens Energy. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.